Es un gran privilegio tener la oportunidad de reunirnos alrededor de la Palabra de Dios. Y vamos a estar en el libro de Juan, capítulo 4. And some of you are looking at me going, what in the world is going on? And I wanted to give you just a little taste of what happens every Sunday morning here at PBC with a group of very faithful people who come week after week after week and they sit in our services. And they hear me stand up and say, turn in your Bible to John chapter 4. And that's what I want you to do this morning. And so for the very first time uh, this morning, they are having the opportunity to follow along in their own language. I'm so thankful to Pastor Jairo and the team of folks that work around him. Some months ago, they got a burden to uh, really do more for the Hispanic folks in our congregation. There are about 20 to 25 of them that come together in a community group. And uh, so this fall, we will be officially launching with Pastor Jairo a Hispanic ministry uh, here at PBC. We've been talking to the leadership about this. We've been talking about this as elders. And we're so excited uh, as we get into the fall. But I wanted to give you a little taste of what they have and what they experience every week. And so today they have the opportunity to follow along um, uh, in the notes with, uh, in, in their own language. So Pastor Jairo, thank you. And uh, you and Susan and your team for, uh, for the way in which you care so much for them. And it ties right in with our, our series on worship. Because as we come to the most familiar passage in the New Testament, the most familiar and the most extended passage anywhere in the New Testament worship, we're going to see that worship goes beyond our borders as we talk about the divine priority of God-focused worship. So let me ask you to turn to John chapter 4, and while you're turning there, I'm going to ask you to do something that um, every once in a while, when we turn to a very familiar passage of Scripture, we need to do. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you can to suspend what you know about this passage. Uh, We know about the story of the woman at the well. This is one of the more familiar narratives in John's gospel. And there are very, very few people who go to church on a regular basis who have not encountered this story at some point in their journey. And we've all heard the story, and we've all got ideas, and we've all interacted in our mind with what John is doing. And so what I'd like to ask you this morning is this. Would you come to this story and let John tell it to you as though you had never heard it before? Would you let John point your eyes to where he wants them to go? And would you open your ear to hear what John actually wants you to hear as he tells you the story? And I think that would be of incredible benefit to us. We have been on a journey to understand what the Bible has to say about worship. And we have come to the point in our journey where we are moving out of the part of the Bible where we have pretty much exclusively been looking. We've been looking at the first part of our Bible, the Old Testament, to see what God said about worship. And we noted that God called and redeemed and sanctified and consecrated a group of people to enjoy unrestrained fellowship with Him in His presence. We saw this in Isaiah 43. 
He consecrated them to receive boundless blessing from His hand. Psalm 16.11 says, At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. These people were to bear His name in a worthy way. In fact, their Torah, the Ten Commandments that God gave to them that sort of were the foundation of the Torah, the, the commands right at the beginning said, Do not bear the Lord's name in an unworthy way. And the reason for that is that they were to carry that name and its glory to the nations. And that's really what we saw in Psalm 95, wasn't it? Where uh, David issues from the Lord a call to this nation to come into the presence of God and render glad and joyful and triumphant worship to the God who had done marvelous things for them. And we went right next door to the very next psalm, Psalm 96, and we saw a very important component that God added into that mix, and that, it, and that component was that the joyful worship that came out of obedient hearts that God had drawn to Himself were to declare that glory, to share that glory with the nations. Listen to Psalm 96, verses 2 and 3. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation. That's exactly what Psalm 95 instructed us to do. And then it says this, Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all of the peoples. And that's exactly what we find happening here in John chapter 4. The Son of God has come. And he makes a way, his way to the very middle of Israel and he finds himself sitting on the edge of a very ancient well with very good water that had been giving thirsty people drink for more than 2,000 years all the way back to the days of the patriarch Jacob. And he sits on that well And he meets a woman and he talks to her about the marvelous water of life and gives to her eternal life. And by the time the story ends at the end of chapter 4, verse 42, an entire city of people have come to realize that the person talking to them is the Savior of the world. And that's the title they use for him. But that brings me to a question this morning. What does all of this have to do with worship? I mean, if we're really honest and we look at this text this morning, it sounds a whole lot more like evangelism than it does about worship. So how in the world do we come to a text like this and see worship? What does this text have to do with worship? And if you listen to John carefully, he would say to you, everything. This text has everything to do with worship. Worship is at the very core. It's at the very heart of everything that is going on when Jesus comes to Samaria to meet this woman and bring her to the saving gospel of His Father. So, who were these people and how do they fit in the story of worship? The Samaritans were living in the land of Israel, and they were descendants of mixed marriages from way back to when the Assyrians and the Babylonians came and and captured 
the northern kingdom and, and destroyed the southern kingdom and took them into captivity. When these two things happened, when the northern kingdom went into captivity by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom later by the Babylonians, there were Jewish families that were allowed to remain in the land if they were loyal to their overlords. Now, the, the, the Assyrians especially, but also the Babylonians, they didn't just deport people out of the land, they also imported people from other lands that they had captured. And so this is exactly what happened. They imported pagan people from other defeated nations and allowed them to live in Israel. And these foreign people brought their customs, they brought their religious beliefs, and over time, as these two groups intermarried, they melded their cultural practices together, they melded their social values and their religious beliefs into an amalgamated religion that gave honor to the God of the land. In other words, back in the ancient world, everybody looked at a land and said, what's the God of this land? And so if you went to the Babylonians, they had certain gods they worshipped. If you went to Assyria, they had certain gods. If you went down to Egypt, they had certain gods. And if you came to Israel, everybody wanted to know, so who's the God that you guys worship here? And the name of that God was Jehovah or Yahweh. And so as these people came from all of these other places with their social values, their cultural practices, and their religious beliefs, they wanted to make sure they gave honor to the God that was in charge of this land, even though he had been defeated. And so they just simply brought all of this together and they started worshiping together. Because they lived in the northern kingdom and the capital of that kingdom was Samaria, soon they became known as the Samaritans. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible. They also believed that God should only be worshipped on a certain mountain, Mount Gerizim. Uh, and by the way, the woman and Jesus at the well could look right up and see Mount Gerizim from where they were sitting. This is the mountain that you meet uh, or that you see and you encounter in Deuteronomy chapter 11 where Moses points to that mountain. He says, this is the mountain that is going to represent all the blessings of God. And so the Samaritans believed that that was the mountain that you should worship on. They were mistakenly convinced that that mountain is where God sent Abraham to offer Isaac. This was in complete opposition to what the Jews who lived in Jerusalem believed. They had an entire Old Testament. They believed that the mountain upon which Jerusalem was built was actually the Mount Moriah that God sent Abraham and there he obviously delivered Isaac and provided a ram, and that is later the place where God instructed David to bring the tabernacle and eventually Solomon to build the temple. And so there was an immediate opposition to the people who lived in Samaria and worshipped on Mount Gerizim. In fact, the Samaritans built a little temple on top of that mountain, and they carried out their religious observances there, and 125 years before Jesus visited that place and sat at that well, a group of radical religious Hasmoneans went to that mountain and burned that temple to the ground. To say that there were tensions between the Samaritans and the Jews was the understatement of the entire Old Testament. 
And this is why John explains to us why this woman is so shocked that Jesus would ask her for water. And he says, as explanation, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. This is in verse 9 of the account. In fact, they went out of their way to avoid even walking through their territory. If they encountered a Samaritan and touched anything that a Samaritan touched, if they sat where the Samaritan sat, or they brushed up on, against a Samaritan in some way, shape, or form, or, or it, certainly if they drank from a jar that had been carrying water out of which a Samaritan had drunk, they would be ritually impure and could not enter into their temple until they had been purified. This is how deep the antipathy between these two groups went. The Jews considered the Samaritans a mongrel race of half-breeds with a mangled religion, a desecrated temple, and a disobedient form of worship. They had no room for them in their cities or towns. They had no place for them in their temple. And certainly, Messiah would never let anybody like them into His kingdom. Which is why it is so stunning that in the number one passage, in the most extensive passage on worship in the New Testament, Jesus goes right to those people and He goes right to a well. And he has a conversation with a representative of this group about worship. You think about this. I mean, here's a woman who has been badly broken by sin. Everything of value to her has been taken. She's been abused by others. She's a social outcast. She has a ruined reputation. Everything that sin could do to a person sin has done to this woman. Not even the Samaritans wanted her. The Jews didn't want the Samaritans, and the Samaritans didn't want this woman. And when Jesus goes to find a worshiper, He goes right to her. Now let me ask you before we start judging the Samaritans or the Jews, if we had lived in that time, would we feel that way? You say, well, I would never feel that way. I mean, I hope I would never feel that way. And the only reason you wouldn't feel that way is because of the gospel that Jesus is bringing in this passage. I mean, can I just ask us as a congregation, a very difficult congregation, would a woman like this really feel at home here in our congregation if she came to worship? Her first Sunday, I'm sure everybody would come up and say, oh, hi, hey, how are you? We're so glad you're here. But what about her second, her third, her fourth, her fifth, her ninth Sunday here? I mean, what might be going on in her mind as she looks around and she sees you and me worshiping together here? And we look nothing like she looks. She doesn't even want to talk about her background because she's ashamed of what has happened to her. And you and I would say, oh, no, 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 no. There's nothing to be ashamed about. It's, it's good. We are so glad that you're here. But this woman would look at us and say, well, then why, aren't, why am I not welcoming your home? Why is it that I'm, I, I feel so uncomfortable in your midst? And I think that what Jesus is doing here in this text is He's helping us realize something immense 
that will help us understand what the Father is doing through the Son, by the Spirit, and the Word that changes everything. And so as we come to a text like this, I want us to note that Jesus is seeking worshipers and He could have picked anyone in Israel and when He went to find the representative that would most represent the true worshiper of God, He went to a woman that nobody else would have even thought about. And how often does that happen in my life and in yours? The word worship occurs ten times in this text. That's why I say it is the heart of worship. The whole passage is about worship. It does talk about evangelism. It does present the Gospel. But the heart of this text revolves around the ten occasions where the number one word for worship in the New Testament occurs. And at the heart of it, we are told in chapter 4, verse 23, that God is seeking a certain kind of worshiper. God is seeking a certain kind of worshiper. And by the time John finishes this encounter, we are going to find that there is a whole city full of the kind of worshipers that God is seeking. And we're going to discover here that God is the one doing the seeking. In fact, by the time we get to the end of our time together this morning, I think you and I are going to be stunned to see that every member of the Trinity is involved in whatever is going on in this text. Worship is a divine priority. Worship is a divine priority. And so let's begin by looking at the setting and the preparation for the story. In John chapter 1, all the way up through John chapter 3, John has been getting us ready for something amazing. John announces the arrival of someone who has come down from heaven to overcome the darkness, to give light to all those who receive him by believing in his name. That's what you see in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. And what you discover is that the person who has come down from heaven to do all of this came down to change everything. He came to do what the covenant of Moses, as wonderful and as glorious as it was, could never do. He came to reveal grace and truth and glory from the Father. He came to make radical change and to kind of get us ready for this radical change. John tells us four stories. In chapter 2, he tells us the story of Jesus going to a wedding and turning water into wine. And that story gets us ready for a cleansing that he is going to do at the temple. Something fresh has to happen at the temple. The old water and the old jars are no longer sufficient. And so John tells the story of Jesus turning water into wine because this is exactly what is about to happen at the temple. And he goes and he cleanses the temple. And then the next story is in John chapter 3 where we meet one of the religious leaders, a Pharisee, who comes to Jesus to find out about the necessity of a supernatural birth from above. And that birth from above results in spiritual cleansing that comes from the Holy Spirit. The backdrop to the story of Nicodemus is Ezekiel 
chapter 36, where God said He would sprinkle people with fresh water that would cleanse them. And so, just like He went to the temple to cleanse it, He now is going to talk to a religious leader about His need for cleansing. And the only way, Nicodemus, that you're going to get this cleansing is for God to give it to you. And He's going to give it to you through the Spirit who is going to wash you with the Word and you will be clean. In the last part of chapter 3, we find the third story about cleansing. There's the water being turned into wine and the cleansing of the temple. There's Nicodemus and the new birth that cleanses. And then we find a discussion between the disciples of John the Baptist and a Jew, a Pharisee. And what they're arguing about is the relation between the baptism that this Pharisee is watching watching, and spiritual purification. And John points to someone who is going to come with a better baptism, with better water that will result in a better cleansing, a better purification that will lead to eternal life that can only be received as a gift from heaven. Now I want you to keep your finger in chapter 4, but look over at verse 27. John says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. God sent someone from heaven to bring cleansing. Story number one, water into wine, leading to the cleansing of the temple. Story number two, Nicodemus, you need to be cleansed. There there is no earthly water that can cleanse you. You need to be cleansed by a water that I told Ezekiel I would send. And that water will sprinkle you and make you pure. And that water is going to come as the Holy Spirit indwells you and washes you with the water of the Word. Story number three, John the Baptist has to settle an argument between his baptizing disciples And a Pharisee is going like, why do you need this kind of baptism to purify? We've got plenty of water at the temple, and that's how you get purified. And Jesus said, or John says, God is actually going to send someone with a better water that can bring a better cleansing that leads to eternal life. And nobody gets it unless they get it from heaven. And that leads us right into the fourth story, which is our story where God brings this water to a woman who comes to get water from an ancient well. Jesus came to change everything. Which leads us to how God is at work doing this. The Father is seeking true worshipers. That's the heart of it. In chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus tells this woman, the hour is coming and is now here. When, and then he uses this expression, true worshipers. He's going to boundary out a group of people and he's going to give them a title. He's going to say, now these are people, and I want you to know about these people, they're true worshipers. And they are in contrast to all of the other worshipers. I mean, think about all of the worship that had been going on in Israel. There were the Samaritans who were worshiping at the wrong place in the wrong way, 
and were completely erroneous in this. And Jesus said to the woman, you know not what you worship. Salvation actually is going to come out of the Jews. So you have this kind of worship going on. And then you have prescribed worship that for since the days of Moses, God had said you are to worship in this way by these practices and rituals in this location. So you have all of these worshipers. And Jesus says, I'm announcing a brand new thing. I am looking at all of this and I am telling you that God is coming and establishing something new. He is looking for a very different kind of worshiper. And the worshiper that He is looking for will be like this. They will be true worshipers. And the Father is determined to make this happen. You know, the word seeking that you see here in verse 23 is a rare term when it's used by, uh, by God or of God. Normally you see people seeking God to get something or they're on a quest to accomplish something. This is one of the very few times in our Bible where we see God on a quest. We see God seeking. The idea here is that God is on a mission and He is deeply committed to this mission. The, the uh, immensity of this mission is obvious because it has to do with God's glory and God's honor. He, he is on a quest, and as Jesus begins to unpack this for this woman, we walk away, and our, here's the response that I had as I began to unpack it this week, and I hope you have as you hear it this morning. It literally, it's like this, oh my word, I never saw how immense this is. This is vastly more important than anything going on in my life. This is stunningly more important than anything going on in your life that you are so determined to get God doing for you. God, I know you got a lot of stuff going on and you you got all kinds of things, but I really need you to focus here. This is what I need you to get on a quest for. If you're going to get on a quest, it's fine to go to this woman at a well. It's fine to talk about the Jews over in Jerusalem. All of that's great. But I've got something that is so massive and so important that you need to actually keep doing all those things because you're, uh, we get it, you're omnipresent, you're omnipotent, and all of that. But I really need you to focus right here because this is the most important thing going on in my life right now. And if you don't get involved, then I'm going to have to take matters in my own hands. Does that ever happen to us? Am I the only one that that ever happens to? And then you come to this passage. And you are stunned that all of that just kind of goes into the background and there is this immense thing that God is up to. You ever had, some of you don't have kids yet, but you ever had your little kid, maybe four or five years old, and they come to you and they say, Daddy, you can't go to work tomorrow. You need to stop working because it's super important to me that you help me play Legos tomorrow. Because I have this Lego city that I want to build, and I don't know how, and Mom's not very good at it. In fact, Mom stinks at it. 
So I just need you to quit your job. I need you to just focus, and every day we're going to build my Lego city. And as a dad, how do you respond to that? Oh, honey, that's so sweet of you. I'm so glad you think I can build stuff. See, honey, he thinks I can build stuff. But is it going to happen? And the answer is what? No. At some point, you have to help that kid understand that as beautiful and interesting and entertaining as a little Lego city is, there's something much more important going on. And you know what God is doing here through Jesus in John chapter 4? He is destroying the idea that our little Lego city, whatever it is, is the most important thing that we need God involved in. God the Father is on a quest, and we see the immensity of the quest, and because all members of the Godhead have to be involved in it, we see the complexity of it. Whatever God is seeking is so immense that it requires the attention of all the members of the Godhead, and therefore we start to see its complexity. Whatever God is doing with regard to worship, He has to do it in a way that that validates His righteousness. He has to operate truthfully, faithfully, redemptively. And every member of the Godhead has to be involved. This immense thing is also complex. And the reason that God is so intensely involved in this is because it is a priority to Him. Worship is His priority. What is it that God is seeking? He is seeking true worshipers. Now, let's stop for a moment and ask ourselves the question, what does He mean when He calls a group of people true worshipers? And I would suggest to you, if you go to the commentaries, most of them are going to use words like authentic, sincere, genuine to describe this. God wants people to come to worship Him, and when they come, He wants them to be authentic. He wants them to be sincere. He he wants the worship coming out of their heart to be genuine. Now let me ask you a question. Does God want authentic worship? Yes or no? Yes. Does He want worship to come out of us sincerely? Yes or no? Does He want worship that's true and faithful? And the answer is what? Yes. Can I suggest something to you? There are plenty of texts that support that. That's not the point being made here. And when we immediately run to that, we miss the immensity of what God is doing. God is actually doing something very different. He is taking out of all the worship that is going on in the world over which He is King, He is bringing a group of people and He is putting them in an entirely new class. There is a new kind of worshiper that is being established here and this new kind of worship, or worshiper rather, are going to be the ones who can now authentically and sincerely and truly give God glory and honor and worship in a very different temple, in a very different location. I mean, think about it this way. The woman is asking a question. She says to Jesus, our fathers worshipped over here, you guys worship over there, and so I want to know which place is the right place. She is asking a 
where question. And Jesus looks at her and says to her, now let me answer it this way. The hour is coming and now is where people aren't going to worship there anymore and people aren't going to worship there anymore. They're going to worship here. Jesus is introducing a new location for worship. And the new location is the Spirit. So we got to find out how the Spirit ties into this. But the Spirit is the new location for where worship is going to happen. Jesus is answering a where question. And as He answers the where question, the people who get to worship in this new location are a brand new class of people. Something has to happen to these people in order for them to get there. All you had to do to be a good Samaritan was traipse up the slopes of Mount Gerizim and do whatever rituals you were supposed to do there. All you had to do to be a good Jew was traipse down to Jerusalem three times a year, walk up the slopes of Jerusalem to the temple and do the offerings and render the praises and do the ritual bathing and you were good to go. And Jesus, sitting at a well, looks at a woman and He says, the hour has come that all of this is going to be set aside. The implications of that are pretty intense. Because all around the world, there are people who are still worshiping at Mount Gerizim. They're still worshiping in Jerusalem. They go to the Wailing Wall. They worship in other ways. And Jesus is announcing a brand new thing. The location of worship has changed. It is now going to happen in this, in this location, in this realm. It's going to happen in the Spirit. And so if you want to be a true worshiper, you have to be the kind of person that can go into that location. So how do I become the kind of worshiper, the kind of true worshiper that can get there? And the answer is, the Son has to do something. The Father seeks worshipers, a new kind of worshiper coming in a new place to offer true and genuine worship. And in order for me to get into that realm, the Son has to do something. The Son has to save True worshipers. And this is what's going on in the very first part of the story. This is why it feels like evangelism. You have Jesus coming to this woman, and He is going to give her eternal life. It's interesting in the book of John, John constantly described God as sending. There was a man sent by God whose name was John. Jesus was sent into the world, and now He's being sent by the Father to this well to meet a woman who was despised by everybody. Religious orthodoxy despised her. Her own people rejected her. In every way conceivable, she was the most unlikely representative of what a true worshiper would be. I mean, in, in every way, she could not have been further away from Jesus. I mean, just think about it. Racially, she was a Samaritan and not a Jew. Culturally, she was a woman... Socially, she was despised and rejected. Religiously, she was ritually unclean. Morally, she was deeply immoral. 
Spiritually, she was in serious theological error. Excluded from the covenant Moses mediated for Israel. She had been badly broken by sin and abused by sinners. Don't think for a minute about these marriages. We, we sometimes bring our Western mind to this and we're like, okay, she, she just never could be happy with a husband. Do you realize in the ancient world, a man could divorce a woman for almost any reason at any time? All he had to do was say, I divorce you for any reason. And here was a woman who had had that happen to her five times. In an utter desperation trying to figure out, what do I do with my life? How do I get food? How do I make it? There is a man she ends up hooking up with who won't even marry her. That's who's sitting at this well. She has been bruised and battered and damaged by sin. And she comes to the well in the middle of the day because she has a thirst. And Jesus knew that the thirst was never going to be satisfied by the good fresh water from that deep well that had been quenching people's thirst for more than 2,000 years. There was nothing wrong with the well. It was just the wrong water. You think about how many different times we go to wells like that to get our satisfaction. And Jesus knows, and God knows, that we will never be satisfied by that kind of water. In fact, we will never be satisfied until we get the water of life. There's a very different kind of worship that comes out of a very different kind of water. The water that Jesus is going to offer her is not water that comes out of a well. It's water that Ezekiel described as a river flowing out of a glorious temple. And as Ezekiel starts walking in that water, it's stunning what happens to him. You can read about this in Ezekiel 47. That water just flows everywhere. And everywhere that water from the temple flows, life happens. You see a creation teeming with life that comes out of that water. And Isaiah says, now I want you to come to this water and I want you to drink as much as you want without cost and without price. And here's a woman who desperately needs that water and all she can do is come to Jacob's well and get Jacob's water. And one day, Jesus comes and He says to her, Give me a drink. And she's like, how in the world are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus says, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for this water. Remember this? And then he says something to her. He says, woman, this is a term of respect for her. Woman, believe me. In the text, the way the grammar is written there, it actually says this, believe in me. Believe in me. Remember John the Baptist at the end of chapter 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see light, but the wrath of God remains on him. Here is a woman who's, who had wrath pouring down on her life from every direction. And Jesus comes and He says, I've got water for you. That will change everything. And when you get this water, your life will become a, uh, you will become a person who can worship the true God because you will be a true worshiper. And she says, give me this water. And Jesus says, here's how you get it. Believe in me. And she's like, well, who are you? 
And he said, I am. This is the introduction to the identity of Jesus in the text. He says, I am. You want to know who I am? I am the one that revealed himself to Abraham. I'm the person that showed up in a burning bush to talk to Moses. Jesus is going to make a whole lot of statements in the rest of John. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread from heaven. And here he looked at this woman and he says to her, you want to know about the Messiah? I am. And this woman believes. That brings me to the third question, or the fourth question, and that is, how in the world does a woman like this, hearing words like that, ever come to believe a claim like that? The Father seeks, the Son is sent to save, and the Spirit is the one who sanctifies true worshipers. Something had to happen in this woman for her to hear the words of Jesus and understand the beauty of what was being offered to her. Something had to happen to her. And that's exactly what Jesus said. God is spirit, verse 24, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. There's something going on here with spirit and truth. And so, I just want to ask you to maybe suspend what you've been thinking about with that regard there, because basically what you've typically heard is that when you come to worship, you need to come in spirit, you need to come with the right kind of heart, authenticity, and you need to come in truth. You need to truly come with a faithful life. And I'm suggesting something very different here. I think those two terms are referring to the same thing. The grammar would indicate that whatever comes first is being described by something. There is a spirit who's being described by the word truth. And all through John, the Holy Spirit is called this, the Spirit of truth. You can see this in John 14, in John 15, and John 16. So Jesus is saying, if you want to worship, if you want this water, you're going to have to get it from the Spirit. The Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, is going to have to do something to you in regard to what I've been saying. And you know what the Spirit of God has to do? He has to do two things. He has to quicken a dead heart, and He has to open blind eyes. That's what has to happen. The Spirit of God had to open this woman's eyes after He enlivened her heart so that she could believe what she was hearing. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever thought about this? Why is it that some people can sit Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, or maybe they're in your circle of acquaintances and you've witnessed to them time and time and time and time again and they hear every word you say and they can tell you everything that you've said to them, but they don't believe. And you look at them and if you could really have a conversation with them, you would say, so why is it you don't believe? I don't get it. I've, I've, I've shared this with you for ages. I've talked to you this way For eons. I mean, our church preaches this every Sunday. You grew up hearing this. Why don't you believe? And they'll have some kind of answer. Well, I just, it's, you know, how can you believe in somebody actually raising from the dead? Or how can you believe in somebody actually being born of a virgin? Or, 
You know, what do you do with all the other books, religious books that are out there? Or what about all the people who worship all these other gods? Are you really telling me they're going to hell and they have all these reasons why they don't believe? Can I give you the Bible reason they don't believe? The Spirit of God has not quickened their heart and the Spirit of God has not opened their eyes. That's why. And you and I go, well, maybe I'll just tell them a better story. Ooh, if I could think of a better story. And so I'm going to, maybe I could just give them a better illustration, or maybe I could just beat it into them, or maybe I could trick them. Maybe I could just trick them in. Hey, bow your heads. We're just going to pray for your house. Lord, I pray that you would bless this house. I'm a sinner. Repeat after me I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. I need to be saved. I repent of my sin. I repent of my sin. I want you to save me. Amen. They thought that they were just bowing their heads, listening to you pray for their house, and you snuck the sinner's prayer in on them. And you walk away going, yes, they did. They said the words. This is not, you know, remember the old story about Alibaba and the magic cave? And you come up to the magic cave, and you got to say some magic words. And if you don't get the words right, the cave stays shut, and you don't get in and get to have the treasures. And so if you just say the words, you get in the cave. And a lot of Christians think that's what salvation is. You just say the words. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I need to repent. I need to repent. I need to believe. I believe in the Lord. You know, I believe in the Lord and I'll be saved. And, and we say the magic words and we think the cave opened. And it didn't. Because the only way a person believes is for the spirit of truth to quicken your heart and to open your eyes and to grant you repentance. And that's exactly what happens here. The Spirit of Truth opens this woman's eyes and she's so excited that she leaves her water jug and runs back to Samaria. And that's the next thing we see. The Scripture satisfies her. The Spirit of God opened her eyes to the work the Son was mediating for her that the Father sent Him to do. And when she got it, she left her water jug and went running for the city to talk to all the people who despised her. Think about this. You just found the treasure. Who do you want to give it to? And who do you not want to give it to? Well, I want to give it to... This person and this person, but those people over there who've been looking down on me, I can't even come to the well to get water in the cool of the day. They're getting none of this. And that's not what happens. This woman is so satisfied by the word that the Spirit has confirmed to her that she goes running back to the city and she tells everybody who she met. And she suggests his identity and the text says that many believed in him on account of her words. And then they come. She says, come, come and see. This is exactly what the disciples earlier in John said. Come and see. Now here's another disciple doing what the earlier disciples did. And she's saying, come and see. And so they come and see. And when they come and see, they hear. And the Spirit of God does in them the very same thing that He did in her. And they say, Come and stay. Jesus has been run out of the city of Jerusalem. He's been run out of Judea, orthodoxy. And now he's sitting here at a well. And here are these outcasts. And they come to him. And the Spirit of God changes them into true worshipers. And they say, stay. 
And Jesus stays for two days. And by the time it's all over, these men, these Samaritans look at the woman and they say to her, we believe not because of what you said to us, although that's what God is going. We believe because of what we heard from Jesus. At the end of the day, you get saved and I get saved not because some human being told us words. We get saved because Jesus told us about eternal life. And the Spirit of God brings that to bear in our life. You say, well, Pastor Sam, that's great. What does it have to do with us? Well, look at the last thing here in the text. These worshipers spread worship throughout the world. They say He is the Savior of the world. There's only one other place where Jesus is referred to in that title, and it's in 1 John chapter 4. Jesus looks at His disciples, and He says to them, as these Samaritans are coming to hear the word that the woman told them she heard, He says, I want you to lift up your eyes and I want you to see the fields are white to harvest. And then He says this, I want to send you into those fields to join the people who've already been at work in those fields. Now think about this. Who has been at work in Samaria? The Father has been seeking. The Son has been sent. The Spirit has been operating. The Trinity has been at work in the field of Samaria. And Jesus says to His disciples, I want to send you into that field to join the people who've been working. There are people who've been working in the field, and I want you to join those people that have been working so that you can reap a harvest, and the harvest you're going to reap are the true worshipers God is seeking. And that's exactly what has to happen in our lives, isn't it? I mean, that's how worship happens. John Piper wrote a wonderful book on missions, and and in the heart of that book was this statement, mission exists because worship doesn't. Mission exists because worship doesn't. We don't go to the mission field because we got a friend there that needs us to come and help you know, take care of their kids or cook or whatever. We don't go to the mission field because it's popular or because it's the new thing or what everybody else does. There's only one reason we should go anywhere in the world and it is to help in the harvest where God is at work making true worshipers. And the best way to tell whether or not God is really moving in somebody's heart to go there to do it is to see what they're doing here to bring true worshipers. And so I want to challenge you. There is a great mission and there is a world that needs to be reached. And you and I will never reach it if it's just about we're going to get on a plane and go somewhere because it's the cool thing to do. If we're going to do what Jesus did, we're going to have to go to these kinds of hard places where the Gospel isn't, and we're going to have to stay there until the Gospel is. And the only way to get to where the Gospel isn't so that the Gospel can come is to be a person who is deeply involved in bringing the Gospel to people right here. Because God is looking for such worshipers. And I want to challenge us to that as a church.
Remember I told you this series on worship was going to get pokey? This is real pokey. But look around. Does this church look like every nation, tongue, and tribe? Let's look around. When you get to heaven, it's every nation, tongue, and tribe. Do we live in a city where every nation, tongue, and tribe exists? And the answer is what? Yes. So why is it that people who look different than us don't feel comfortable when they come to worship? It's not the building. Oh, it's the building. You know, it's just a, you know. No, it's not the building. It's not the chairs. I mean, it might be the chairs. They're old. You know why they don't feel comfortable? Because we have not gone out of our comfort zone to make them comfortable. I mean, talk about this woman. Socially, racially, morally, all of it. Jesus changed her into His image, not into ours. And so, if we're going to be that kind of a church, we're going to have to get this kind of a vision. Where we understand that God is at work in a harvest And it can't be about our comfort, what makes us happy, what makes us frustrated. It can't be about our sorrows. Oh, this is so sad. I can't, whatever. It can't be about that. It has to be about the work the Trinity is doing for His glory through us and through the churches that He's raised up around the world. And He has called you and He's called me to join in that harvest. And some of us, are so busy trying to figure out how to get God on our page doing our little kingdom that we miss the whole point to why God has established the church. The church is a temple indwelt by the Spirit of God. That's the new realm where we worship. That's Ephesians 2. And as a member of that church, you have the immense privilege as a true worshiper to do what the Samaritan woman did in the city where God has placed you. Let me challenge you to pray about ways in which God might do that through you. Lord, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your goodness. Lord, this message out of this text has been very different than what I intended when I first opened up John 4, what I thought I would find. And so, Lord, I pray that Your Spirit would take what's here, not what we thought was here, what You actually put here and begin to work deeply in our lives. Lord, convict us where we need conviction. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Lord, give us wisdom and knowledge and joy as we go into the harvest field to reap worshipers that You have been at work seeking. Your Son has been at work saving. And Your Spirit has been at work opening their eyes and enlivening their hearts so they would see the beauty of the Gospel in the face of Jesus. And we'll thank You for it in Jesus' name. Amen.